my feelings. You hurt my feelings. Uh, that's my best imitation of a cry that we heard a number of times from a certain five-year-old girl. Uh, my family was watching this girl for a week while her parents were on vacation. Here was the scenario that unfolded a number of times repeatedly. At the beginning of that week, uh, this is what would happen. The kid would interrupt somebody who was speaking. She would be told that she had to stop interrupting. She had let the other person finish before she could speak again, to which she would then throw her head back, and she would go, ah, you hurt my feelings. It was astonishingly sad. Do you realize, wonderful kid from a wonderful family, but, but do you understand what she had learned from this world? The horrible lesson she had already learned at five years old was that she knew in this culture the person who is the most upset, the most victimized, the most hurt in feelings, that person always gets the floor. She assumed she could play the hurt feelings card and then she could dominate. She could get what she wanted. My wife shocked this child to her core by exposing the stupidity of that mindset. Jana was absolutely brilliant. She smiled and she looked at the girl and every time that happened, she said, your feelings are hurt? Oh, that's good. That's good. It's, it's, it's healthy for you and that shows that we're real friends. That's what Jana said every time. Finally, one time, little girl, it kind of dawned on her what was being said and she stopped and she said, wait, why do hurt feelings mean we're friends? Which is a great question. To which my sweetheart said, well, it's because real friends aren't afraid to hurt each other. They just try to do so for good and not for bad. Close quote. Thank goodness it's only five-year-olds who act that way, right? I mean, none of us are ever like that. We don't whine or complain or fall back from relationships when our feelings are hurt. <clears throat> I am horrified to find that when one of you hurts my feelings, which happens fairly often, I find myself thinking longingly about those other churches that have tried to hire me. <laughs> it's true. I'm horrified to confess, but it's true. Because, of course, no one hurts feelings there. And by the way, I'm not talking about when you hurt my, fe my, my, my feelings from bad reasons, when you're just operating in our sinful flesh. No, no, I, this is awful. I want to flee our relationship when you're hurting me for good. When you point out my flaws, my shortcomings, my lack of wisdom, in a word, when you admonish me, I have to fight a sincere desire to either flee our relationship or cry out, you hurt my feelings, until I can drown out your input. And I doubt I'm alone in this. We each do this all the time, often without even thinking about it. Look, here's the truth. Relational deconstruction and division are part of our sinful nature ever since Genesis chapter 3. It's what we do. Now, I know what you're thinking, that that tragic truth drives you to ask in your little girl voice, huh, can anything be done to change this? Yes, of course it can. Open your Bible, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, the answer to your question, can anything be done to change this, is in the middle part of Colossians 3.16. Turn there in your Bible. Colossians 3.16 is where the rough and tumble of fellowship eliminates our self-centeredness, our hypersensitivity. Let's read verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, the Greek experts tell me that the middle part of Colossians 3.16, this is kind of hard to render because of the punctuation in, in English. What do you do with the punctuation? I'm personally persuaded by the scholars who think that, that the division should be placed after the phrase one another. If that's correct, then the English Standard Version probably deals with the punctuation best. Look at the ESV. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Three big ideas here that I think that brings out. The first is what we talked about last time. We read, study, apply, and memorize Scripture. That changes us. That's how the Word dwells richly in us. Secondly, what we're going to cover today is nurturing significant relationships in the fellowship, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then thirdly is worshiping God with gratitude. To live on tar- Listen, to live on target for God. We've got to become ever more and more and more spiritually polished. Just as a smooth stone cuts through the atmosphere. That's why David picked up smooth stones to go fight Goliath. Smooth stone cuts through the atmosphere, flies true when it is launched. In the same way, it really is true, folks. We can knife through this culture. We really can and achieve God's purposes in it. But one of the most important ways for us to become smooth is friction. It's the friction that we experience in Christian relationships. Let's start our understanding by catching the context. Paul uses the phrase one another. Oh, by the way, that's the headline in our notes. Uh, You got a worship guide when you came and opened it up on the left side, you'll see the headline one another. In Jesus, we are incorporated into a life of unified fellowship despite our self-focused and deconstructive tendencies. You know, in a micro fashion, you can see this dynamic in strong families. Uh, both nuclear and extended family, when when they're healthy, they can can have a self-reinforcing cycle of good where our innate selfishness is is redirected and shaped for the benefit of one another. You especially see this in the beauty of chores, right? Look, when when you have to do chores, when you're required to work together for, for the good of the home, for the good of others, it trains you. It trains me not to think only of myself, but to think of one another. For example... One of my friends put this sign up in her kitchen uh, at the start of last summer. Very start of the summer, her kids got up, they kind of slept in, they came down a nice way to start the summer, and then this was on the fridge. Summer rules. Have you made your bed, brushed your teeth, brushed your hair, gotten dressed, had breakfast? Plus, 20 minutes of reading, 20 minutes of writing or coloring, clean up one room, play outside for 20 minutes, make or build something creative, and help someone in the family. Then you can use electronics. It's... It, This isn't onerous. This is a great way to make sure we have a healthy summer, right? Later that day, she wrote this. I just put that sign up today. And the whining and cries of, this will be the worst summer ever, have convinced me this is needed more than we even thought. Apparently, selfish entitlement is more deeply rooted in this home than we realized. Close quote. The answer to our hypersensitivity and our entitlement is found in living in committed community. It's it's more than just chores, although chores are part of life. It's helping someone else. It's cleaning a room. It's living beyond what I want to do. And we understand why kids whine about this, right? I mean, living for other people is hard. Other people are so ridiculous and dirty and messy. Other people, of course, are, not us. Our daughter's first day of school serves as a perfect illustration. Okay, here we are. We're walking into the brand new Frisco Independent School District kindergarten, a brand new school, and and my little five-year-old, she's she's holding my hand, and she and mommy and I are walking in together, and we get to her kindergarten classroom. And she's met the teacher, and she's ready for this, and we're all excited. And we open the door, and when we open the door, there's already about 20 of the kids in the class. And, of course, they all turn and look when the door opens. And I'm telling you, at least 15 of those kids had their finger up their nose, picking their nose. It was absolutely disgusting. And my little prim, proper, little five-year-old girl, who has used tissues from the day she came out of the womb, she is so horrified, she squeezes my hand, and she turns her body, and she looks at me and says, Daddy, I don't belong here. 
And we, and we understand. Yet despite the revolting nature of other humans, God commands it. This is not an option. God commands us to be in community with all these yucky nose pickers around us. The phrase one another is not used flippantly. It's very purposeful. Colossians 3.16, it says one another as a way to clearly tie this in with all the other one another commands that are in the New Testament. If you look in your notes, you'll see my collection of a, of a number of these important directives for Christians. So uh, we're told in the Bible to accept one another, to be at peace with one another, talking about Christians among each other, to encourage one another, assemble with one another. Let us not give up assembly together as some are in the habit of doing. Be hospitable to one another. Edify one another. That means to build each other up. Forgive one. Listen to this one. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Uh, David Wade, my friend on our pulpit team, sent me a great note about that one. Look what David wrote. He said, Wayne, when I'm offended in some way, it has been very helpful for me to realize how much I've been forgiven. Seeing in that light, I'm much more likely to forgive and stay engaged. Well said. Uh, here's the rest of my favorites. Uh, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Admonish one another. That's our passage we're in today. It's also in Romans 15. Seek the best for one another. Do not lie to one another. That comes earlier in Colossians 3 in our passage. Bear with one another. And then finally in Galatians 5, serve one another. When I was a little kid, there was an evangelical Christian, uh, this guy, Jesse Colin Young. Um, he, he helped write a song, and the intent of this song was to try to capture all the one another commands of Scripture. Uh, Jesse's song was called Get Together, and, and it unexpectedly became a huge hit. In fact, it became the rather incongruous theme song for the Summer of Love in 1967 in San Francisco. Uh, now look at the lyrics. This is, these are really good lyrics. Love is but a song we sing. Fears the way we die. You, you can make the mountains ring or make the angels cry. Though the bird is on the wing, which is a way to say life is moving by, and you do not know why, come on, people, now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. You're old enough you know this song? Yeah, you've been, I'm, I'm sorry. Misery loves company. It has been in my head all week. And I am so glad to share it with you and have it be in your head all week. Uh, he goes on. Some may come and some may go, but we will surely pass when the one that left us here returns for us at last. We're, we're but a moment's sunlight fading in the grass. Come on, people, now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. It goes on, but you get the idea. Our role is to love one another, the one another's of Scripture. And our time is limited until Jesus returns. Now, let's be honest. Those are good lyrics. makes a great song. That doesn't make the one another commands any easier to do. Most of us, if we're honest, we want to do those commands for other people about as much as my daughter wanted to walk into that room full of nose pickers, right? Why should I give up my self-centeredness for that, right? Here's the answer. Wonderful scholar, Hampton Keithley, uh, he, he gives a great summary of the biblical answer. By the way, uh, Hampton is the, um, the main translator of the New English translation, the Net Bible, uh, and he summarizes. He had a great column he wrote called, Why Fulfill the One Another's? And here he just summarizes Scripture. Because we're God's children. We're, we're God's children. We have a father. We, because we're brethren. You can't. You can't choose your family, Casey. You're stuck with me. I'm sorry. That's part of it. Um, because we are members of one another. God uses this amazing image that we are one body in Christ. And so we can't cut parts off and harm one part. We harm the whole body. Because we're taught by God to love one another. This is a big deal to our Father. Because this is a huge one. Why do we fulfill the one another's? Because 
They've been fulfilled for us. God's loved us because this is the expression and fulfillment of God's word and will. Let me just put it the way my mom would have, because I said so, right? (laughs) And then because we want to glorify him. We really do. We want to glorify the Lord. Now look at that list. Look at that. If you're a believer in Jesus, all of those are true reasons for you. And when you and I don't live out the one another's, we are not acting like who we are. We are not acting like God's children. We are flat out disobeying our Father, and we we cannot glorify Him, period. Keith Lee goes on with the statement I put on the right side of your notes. Look there. The one another actions of the body are the natural and necessary products of being members of one body. These actions promote unity, care of one another, and result in greater effectiveness through diversity and the use of our gifts. The one another, this is well said, the one another passages of the New Testament are designed to hinder independent individualism, apathy toward other believers, uh, ineffectiveness of the church through idle members, the spirit of clericalism and spectator-itis, close quote. Very well said. Amen. Friends, when we do embrace this hard work of the one another commands, it changes lives, especially our own. Our daughter finally entered that kindergarten classroom, and, and guess what happened? Many of those kids in that class became lifetime friends. They have positively impacted and shaped each other for years. In in fact, Jess just recently went on a week-long vacation with two ladies who were in that class. They're all believers in Christ. They have made this same vacation trip every year of their adult life. They talk every single month, sharing hard and soft things, shaping each other, telling each other things they need to hear. And by the way, girls, I'm told that Jessica finally... Uh, taught you to stop picking your noses. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't hurt me, girls. The, uh, instead, look at our next phrase. Our next phrase is, in all wisdom. Sophia is the Greek term we translate wisdom. Incredibly old concept, but here's what you need to know. The New Testament uses this in a completely novel way. Totally new way to use Sophia. Let, let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. Sophia, Sophia was originally, the word's really old, it was originally a pagan goddess, the goddess Sophia. She was crafty, Oh, that's what she was. See, she, she taught humans to be, in, in the mythology, she taught humans to be skillful and clever and, and frankly, to lie. That's what she was about. So, so when you're reading an ancient Greek writer, like you're reading Homer in school, which you hate and you shouldn't because really it's fascinating, but it's school, so you hate it. And, um, and you're reading Homer and he describes somebody as being very wise. Don't, don't think of it like wisdom the way you and I think of wisdom. You've been influenced by the New Testament. No, no. What you want to do to understand that passage is go back to this. What Homer's saying is that person lied well. That's what they're saying, okay? And that's what Sophia meant. Then in the, in the, in the classical era, later in the classical period, there was a, a pretty major shift brought by, along by a number of people called philosophers. And Sophia began to be used of a more internal and, and absolute idea of wisdom. Mystics, especially, began to speak of Sophia as an idea uh, rather than, than a goddess. Um, this is why Pythagoras and Plato, and we don't know which of them did it first. It seems kind of occurred at the same time. They were the first people to call themselves philosophers. Uh, lovers of wisdom, or brothers of wisdom, philosophers, we would say. Okay, that's how things stayed in the Greco-Roman world. That was the idea. The crafty goddess, the idea of something that it's absolute, but we don't really know it. And then your New Testament came. And this was shocking to the world. What the writers in Greek in your New Testament did is they quoted the Old Testament, and they said this, wisdom is found only in God and His Word. Further, They said that wisdom cannot be activated unless there's humility. You cannot activate wisdom 
until there is humility. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that one should avoid all non-Christian thinkers. It, it's fine in the New Testament to gain wisdom from other sources. I mean, note the all in your text. You do know that Paul himself quoted pagan thinkers quite often, in fact. But what Paul does is he shows that for something to be truly wise, it must be grounded in humility and it must resonate, it must agree with God's revealed Scripture. You got that? Okay, so even after becoming Christians, the reason I bring this up is a lot of people struggle with this biblical idea that the only way I can really have wisdom is to activate it through humility, and whatever I'm learning that I think is wise must agree with Scripture. So, so God said things like this to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so he can become wise. And by the way, the context there in 1 Corinthians 3 is about is about God's Word, and, and particularly the eternality of God's Word. He goes on. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written. And here he quotes the Old Testament. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Isn't that cool? You know why he says crafty now? Because it's Sophia, the crafty goddess. Ah, bing! You understand, right? It's a really cute little dig that he's doing there. And he goes on. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise are futile. All right? Only God has wisdom, real wisdom, not just craftiness. And his wisdom is only activated by humility. Let him consider himself a fool. Now, humility is not beating yourself down or thinking of yourself poorly. Humility is understanding yourself properly. Humility in the New Testament is knowing that you're a saint not by your own merit, but through the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, our text, when it says, in all wisdom, here's what that means. It means interactions in the fellowship are grounded in God's wisdom applied through humility, activated by humility. Perfectly captured by a letter I, I got about our annual vision. This was brilliant. Somebody wrote and said, I really like this series because it pushes me to continue to move out of self-reliance based on pride and self-protection and take the risk of fellowship by engaging in love and service. Get this, by engaging in love and service without worrying about how I'm treated or what's in it for me. Wow, close quote. That is so well said. Humility, thinking properly about self while thinking primarily of others. Humility opens us up. It activates God's wisdom. And God's wisdom commands us to engage in love and service without worrying about what's in it for us because that's how we are loved and served by the Lord. Of course, that sparks a question. I know, I know what you're thinking in your little girl voice. You're saying, well, how can I become more humble in the fellowship, activating God's wisdom in my life? Great question. Thank you so much for asking. There are three important and specific steps that make all the difference for your humility. Number one, recognize that God's Spirit is in your brethren. Remember, any believer in Jesus, anyone who's trusted Christ is indwelled by God the Spirit Himself. James chapter 4, verse 5. Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They say that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed in us, opposes our envy. Isn't that well said? Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, shared a personal application of this. The great Scotsman Sinclair, he said, he said, uh, he said this, there's one, only one Holy Spirit that has helped me to think differently about other Christians. This is someone in whom the same Spirit was pleased to dwell in our Lord Jesus is pleased to dwell. That transforms your view. It helps you admire what the Spirit's doing in them and, and is really a great solvent for some of the differences and difficulties we have with each other. Focus on the great glory we have in common, that the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell in each of us and in all of us. 
Vaucluse quote, right? How can I grow in humility and thus wisdom? Number one, recognize God's spirit is in my brethren. Number two, here's action step two. Be honestly and appropriately vulnerable in a manner fitting for each setting. Not every setting's the same. Share honestly. Without making yourself the center of everything, don't fear being the dumb one in the room or, or, the, or the, the uneducated one or the goofy one or the wounded one. As, as the genie taught us when we watched Aladdin, be yourself, right? Be yourself. Another friend sent me a great note about this. Um, said, I went to a presentation, Wayne, a uh, presentation by, by Bob Goff last week. That's the, the author of Love Does, Summer's Best Friend. And, um, and Bob said that because of an ailment, he had a strong hand and a, a weak hand. His advice was to reach out with your weak hand. It really made me think about letting down my guard and being vulnerable in order to engage others more fully. Real fellowship demands a genuine desire to help others grow in Christ while fully recognizing I don't have all the answers. This is brilliant. That's the opposite of my strong hand default mode of hypercritical, judgmental criticism. Close quote. How can I grow in humility and thus activate wisdom? Number one, recognize that my brethren possess God's spirit however much they may drive me crazy. I need to honestly and appropriately be vulnerable. And number three, read Scripture. Nothing builds healthy humility in my life like Scripture because nothing else ever reaches so deeply. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Read it with me. You take the underlined text. For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The context, by the way, in Hebrews shows that this Word of God is both the Bible and the person of Jesus. As, as we learned last time, they are interconnected. Therefore, spending time in Scripture connects me to wisdom both in the Bible and in God Himself. And, and get this, because true Sophia is found in, in God and in Scripture, we can utilize Scripture in the development of our brethren as well as ourselves, which takes us to the next point. Re read it again. Um, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We should be teaching each other. The, the, the great Greek term is didasko, which a guy after first hour came up and told me, he said, that sounds like the sauce I put on my pizza, uh, didasko. Um, didasko is about developing the individual person. I want you to look at what the great Greek scholar K.H. Ringstorff said about didasko. He said, the word didasko is used more especially for the impartation of practical or theoretical knowledge where there is continued activity with a view to gradual, systematic, and therefore all the more fundamental assimilation. All right, let me explain what he's saying, okay? Anybody here ever become uh, proficient at sewing or quilting or knitting or crochet? You, you developed a, a craft skill. Anybody here get really good? You become good? Raise your hand. All right, cool. Okay, let me just, did, did, you, just, did you just do that on your own? You, you looked at it on Google and then said, oh, and now suddenly you're an expert at quilting. Is that, is that how it worked? No. Right, here's, a, here's another one. Maybe you can relate to this one. Anybody here ever become proficient with a weapon? You, you became prof proficient with a, a bow or a, or a epée, <laughs> or, you, uh, or you became proficient with a, with a gun. Raise your hand if you become proficient with a weapon at some point. Okay. Did you just watch somebody else uh, shoot and suddenly you were, you were a great shot? Is that how it worked? No, you had to practice and somebody had to teach you, right? You had somebody sat with you at that sewing machine and showed you how to do it. That 
is didaskal. That's how we learn. It's about the development of that person. Now, it may involve lecture. I imagine you had a few lectures learning to shoot in the Army, right, Hiram? There were, there were a couple of lectures, yeah. But the goal, whether there's lecture or not, the goal is development of that person. Look, look at how Dr. Rengstorf wrapped up his article on Didasco. He said, copying the example of the teacher is not here regarded as the principle of instruction merely in the sense of imitation. Listen, the aim is the highest possible development of the talents of each pupil, but always in such a way that the personal aspect is both maintained and indeed strengthened. Didasco, teaching in the body of Christ, is not about creating little automatons. That's not what it's about. That is the sinful human setting that you see everywhere. That's what you see everywhere. That has no place in God's church at all. Didasco is not about unanimity. It's about unity that heightens the development of every single individual. In our last study, we met, uh, we met this guy, Reinhold Niebuhr powerful American philosopher. Here's what he did. He boldly held forth the idea and defended it against all comers. He held forth the idea that, that Scripture alone has the philosophic rigor necessary to handle the identity of humanity. He showed that the Bible alone leads to individual development, didasco. He said, and he proved this, everything else, every other kind of teaching leads eventually to the loss of self. To the, to, the develop, to the undevelopment of the individual, the descent of the individual into a loss of development. It either happens in a, in a dominant collective or it happens in undeveloped isolation. And he's right. Didasco is so important. We teach one another so that we can develop individually together. That's why I wrote in your notes, it says, wise people have a childlike desire to learn from and with others. We don't just Google on our own. We recognize Didasco. We're supposed to learn together. Not too long ago, my dad was on the phone talking to me about a, a Christian leader and the success the guy was experiencing. By the way, don't try to figure out who that is. That's not even a Christian leader there, okay? That's just a picture I put up. Uh, I did that so you wouldn't try and think of what leader it was, and all I got was, oh, what leader was that? It doesn't matter. That's not the point. My dad was talking to me about this guy's wise choices in his organization and how I really ought to check that out. It seemed like he was doing some, some great things. Um, apparently, my lack of enthusiasm was evident on the phone <laughs> because dad finally said, why, why are you so uninterested? You don't seem interested in this at all. And in my kind, respectful, thoughtful way, I said, Dad, that guy's a dork. He is a dork. I have met him. I don't like him. I didn't like him at all. He really he just was not an enjoyable person. And there are, besides, there are some holes in his theology. I was right. And Daddy's response still rings in my ears. Here's what Dad said. You're telling me you aren't willing to learn from another person just because you don't like the guy? Wow. That's not exactly the humble path to wisdom, is it? Ouch. Dad, I got to go. Um, you know, I was chagrined, and, and immediately after I hung up the phone, I thought I had come to mind an exact opposite example, something that I experienced uh, that should have changed me more than I let it. Um, I was a college kid. I was working at camp, and my friend Todd Hinkey and I, we were in charge of the program and, and direction for this, this summer camp. Todd, by the way, his camp name was Beaver because this guy looks exactly like Jerry Mathers. I mean, it's amazing. Anyway, Beaver and Drano was my name. Uh, we, we stumbled onto the, the greatest thing that can happen uh, uh, to leaders at a summer camp. We found a room that was quiet. 
It was absolutely astonishing. The main meeting room that everybody, there was no one in there. There was nothing going on. And we were like, oh, oh, we could hear angels singing. And we ran in and we immediately started brainstorming. Okay, we need to work on this stuff. Now we have a quiet space. And we went up to the front and we were just, we were drawn on the right. We were solving all of the world's leadership problems. Okay, really, we were. Uh, it was, you've done it at camp. We were solving everything. It was genius. And then we realized after a little bit, we've been going for some time, we realized, oh my goodness, there's somebody else in the room. The somebody else was the speaker for that week of camp, a guy named Howard Hendricks, who is, if you don't know, was one of the most recently passed away, one of the most famous teachers in the world, and an expert on Christian leadership. And we're suddenly, we're really embarrassed, you know. And Todd sees it, and I'm like, ah, hey, Prof. And, and Todd says, oh, Prof, sorry, we're going to head elsewhere so you can have, you can have this, this space quiet. We're so sorry. To which Dr. Howard Hendricks said, nonsense. Keep talking. I was listening and learning. I think you two have some good ideas. I want to write them down. And I look back, and the guy has a little notebook open, and he's taking notes. And he came up, and he sat with us, and we took turns at the right board, and, and it was one of the most enjoyable and interesting conversations of my life. That is truly a childlike desire to learn from and with others, even two goofy kids that had no idea about what they were speaking. And he wanted to learn together. That's didasco. Now, let's finish our passage. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Now, admonishing is not, um, it's not rebuke. It is correction, but it's not, it's not harsh rebuke. Admonishment is well-intended exhortation. Um, Here's what's tough about admonishment. In a hypersensitive world, and we live in a very hypersensitive world, it takes real guts to practice admonition. In fact, I think it takes more guts to admonish someone than it does to even rebuke and be harsh because that's a norm in our culture. Admonishment is not. But think about how important it is. Folks, if, if we don't admonish, if we don't shape one another, redeemed community has no chance. It has no chance. If, if we all become polarized, petrified pansies. No stone is going to be turned. It's not going to be no stone left unturned. There will be no stone turned at all. No refinement will occur. As my sweetheart said, hurt feelings are good. They show that we're real friends. Think, think of the stone in a lapidary machine or, or a mountain stream. That, that rock becomes smooth because of what? What makes that rock smooth? Friction. It is the friction that makes all the difference. Without it, it remains jagged. Friction is so important that an old mentor of mine said to me, Wayne, I hope you're having a lot of fights in your elders' meetings. I beg your pardon? Sound like you wanted us to fight in the elders' meeting. That seems kind of uh, counterproductive. He said, no, no, listen. If you don't have friction in your elders' meeting, you guys must not really be talking about anything of import. Well said. By the way, speaking of elders, our elders here at this church have been incredibly blessed over the years. We have overseen many, many positive restoration stories. Now, you don't hear the details of those, and that, that's appropriate. But I just want to tell you this about those restoration stories that we get, to, we get to watch. Whenever we look back on any of those very painful, wonderful stories where, where beautiful life comes up out of what was totally desolate, there's one thing we almost always find. Nearly every time, the turning point in that story began when somebody loved their brother or sister enough to admonish them over sin or, or wisdom or following Jesus. They loved them enough to speak truth in love to them. 
Now, that's not to say that we bully people or we fight over non-essentials. Gene Getz's quote in our bulletin is spot on. Look, look what Gene says. Admonishment must be based on God's specific will and ways, not what we think other Christians should or should not be doing. We must be careful at this point. Many Christians tend to confuse absolutes and non-absolutes. If we exhort Christians in areas that are extra-biblical, areas that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture, or, or specific things that involve cultural standards and practices, then, listen to this, then we are in danger of imposing standards contrary to Scripture. Close quote. Look here. This isn't rocket science. It's not hard. In his letter to the Romans, Paul shows us the way to admonish. This, this is absolutely fascinating. Look at this. Romans 14, 1 through 12. The first part of Romans 14. It teaches us we must not judge each other over scriptural, debatable things. That's not... That's not what we admonish over. It's not something we fight. So in their day, the issue that Paul talks about here is, is meat sacrificed to idols and then eaten by Christians. I don't have time to go into it. We can talk about it later. Uh, in our day, our scriptural things that we, would, uh, that we would wrongly fight over would be uh, what kind of diapers are right to use or the efficacy of essential oils. Uh, that, that'll cause bloodshed. Um, you know, it, the, the, this, these are the things that we fight and admonish or that have no, they're, they're awe scriptural. And we don't, by the way, by the way, meat sacrificed to idols, right? Okay, so, so last week I had this little reader's theater I did where I knelt down to this rock that I pretended was an idol and I offered it a bunch of bananas, okay? Well, after the last service, after this hour, uh, a friend of mine walked up, and, and he looked at the bananas, and I said, hey, do you want a banana? And I gave him one, and this brilliant, this lady who was over here talking to friends, she saw this go on, and she looked, big smile on her face, she looked up, and she pointed at me and said, you just gave him food sacrifice to idols. <laughs> was awesome. Absolutely genius. Very funny. She gets it. All right? We don't judge over those things. Now, next, God has us learn to not selfishly, this is the last part of chapter 14, use our freedom in a way that that harms a brother. All things are lawful for me, but not all are profitable. They're not all good for other people. Examples in our day might be, might be drinking. You're, scripturally, you're free. No, not get drunk. That's scripturally wrong, but you're free to drink. But if you're doing that around or even potentially around people who are alcoholics that are trying to stay healthy and clean, you're causing a brother to stumble, right? That's Romans 14. Uh, you're free to eat nuts, but if you're around somebody who's very allergic to them, that, that can be insensitive and, and wrong. We've got to consider other people's weaknesses. All right, the third thing. Okay, so don't judge, don't self-use freedom. Then chapter 15, the first part, Paul goes into this beautiful passage about how we bear one another's burdens. We are supposed to serve each other. Only after all of that does Paul get to the subject of admonishing, which ends chapter 15. This is, this is easy. This can be transferred to our everyday interaction. Let, let's call it the Christian family admonition prep list, okay? So admonition is important. It is good. It is healthy. Without it, there is, there is turning that, that doesn't happen that needs to happen. However, before I admonish someone, I need to ask, Lord, is this issue a scripturally debatable issue? Is this really? Please, Lord, don't let me just hammer somebody with my opinion. Secondly, am I being insensitive to somebody else's Weakness. Now, we're talking about non-sin weakness. If it's a sin weakness, then, then that's what needs to be admonished. That's fine. But this is a non-sin issue. Am I, am I being insensitive? Talk to the Lord about that. And then the, the third thing, the chapter 15 part, how, Lord, tell me, how can I help them bear this burden? Let me think through ways that I can help be part of a solution. 
Only after all that do I then sit down and say, Dan, we need to talk. Right. It, it, I go through that first. Okay. Admonition, the friction of admonition is necessary, but not until those questions are answered. So do this. Think right now of someone with, you have, with whom you have a conflict. Somebody, this side of heaven, there is somebody with whom you have some, at least with no one else, you have a conflict with me now after this passage, after this message, right? So think of someone with you have a conflict. You got, you got somebody in your mind? Okay, now with that in mind, let's, let's, let's pray. Let's, let's walk through this together. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord, help me see if the issue in, in this conflict is debatable. Lord, please don't let me hammer somebody with my opinion. Father, help me see if I'm being insensitive about a non-sin weakness that, that is in my brother or sister. Please make me sensitive. Let me do to them as I would want them to do to me. Holy Spirit, reveal to me, please, how I can help carry his or her burden. Show me. And now, God, with all that thought through, please make us strong. Make us strong to admonish one another, to not be pansies, to use friction for your good. Give us a childlike desire to teach and to learn from each other. Help us to develop, not lecture. Guide us in true humility, Lord, please. We want to activate your wisdom. Guide us in humility so we can access that wisdom. And may we shape one another under your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.